copies, grab a copy of the scriptures and turn to Psalm, Psalm, Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 3. If you need a copy of the scriptures, our ushers are glad to be able to get one to you. They're standing right at the door over there. Lift your hand so they can know who need one, and they would be glad to get one to you. If you're using a church Bible, 1 Samuel 3 is on page 212. If you're using a church Bible, 1 Samuel 3 is on page 212. We're going to read the whole chapter, verse 1 to verse 21. Brothers and sisters, hear now what Holy Scripture says. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to Yahweh in the presence of Eli. And the word of Yahweh was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of Yahweh, where the ark of God was. Then Yahweh called Samuel. And he said, here I am, and ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So we went and lay down. And Yahweh called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, Yahweh. And the word of Yahweh had not yet been revealed to him. And Yahweh called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that Yahweh was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Yahweh. For your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And Yahweh came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then Yahweh said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to the end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain him. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of Yahweh. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is Yahweh. Let him do what seems good to him. 
and Samuel grew, and Yahweh was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of Yahweh. And Yahweh appeared again at Shiloh. For Yahweh revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of Yahweh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we stand before your word. May we have ears to hear as Jesus said that we should. May we be servants like Samuel that says, speak for your servant hears. And may you speak to us today. And would we draw near to your presence in faith and in holiness to know the blessing of your glorious and awesome presence. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. In November 2014, the Manhattan Highland finally had a new building that was finished which at the time stood as the tallest in all the Western Hemisphere. Thirteen years earlier, there are two other buildings that stood near that spot. But because of the terror attacks of 9-11, the Twin Towers were reduced to absolute rubble. Finally, after over a decade, a new building... 1,776 feet tall, symbolically representing the, uh, when the United States first uh, became a nation, and symbolically standing as courage in the face of fear, the building was finally finished. And it seemed as if the horrors of what happened all that time ago were beginning to be restored. But it took longer than they thought. It took more money than they thought. Restorations are not easy. But when they're done, it recovers what was lost. The nation of Israel in the time of Samuel was in desperate need of restoration. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. The priests at the time had wretchedly blasphemed the Lord, and it seemed as if the nation was under a curse and God had withdrawn his glorious and awesome presence. But finally, God was now ready to clear out the rubble and lay down a new foundation so that his people could enjoy the blessing of his awesome life-giving, glorious presence once again. And this passage shows us how. God's presence is restored when his word is established. As we see the way God establishes his word to restore his presence here, it will show us today the necessity of being humble servants like Samuel that see the word of God established with priority in our lives. God restores his presence. God's presence is restored when his word is established. Do you know how critical 
God's presence is in the believer's life today, in the life of the church. God's presence is a burning light. As I'm teaching my children now about who God is, the thing I tell them most is that God is an all-consuming fire. As the sun is necessary for all the life in our planet, so also is the presence of God necessary in the life of believers. Moses, the preeminent prophet of all the Old Testament prophets, when he was first called into God's presence, do you remember what he saw? A burning bush. A flame that was not dependent on the bush itself, but was sustained by its own source. And from the light was heard a voice calling to him, Moses, Moses. Later, when the prophet Moses was on the mountain Sinai with God, he asked to see the presence of God, and Yahweh said that his whole goodness would pass by him. And you remember what he saw? A shining light, so bright that it even absorbed into the skin of Moses and was reflected out of him when he went down to the people. Like our son, God's glory is awe-inspiring. It is life-giving. The more we draw closer to the presence of God, the warmer and brighter our spiritual lives become. On the other hand, though, the more we withdraw from the presence of God, the darker and colder we know it seems like life is. Important question, then. How can a Christian know that they are near to the presence of God. When I'm playing out with my kids and we're at a park or at a playground and there's lots of other kids lying around, uh, jumping around, um, they might escape my vision for a little bit and I might not know where they are. So in order for them to come back into my presence, I need to call out to them. And at first, it's a loud voice, not because I'm angry, but because they're far from me. And when they hear me and they follow my voice and they come closer to my presence and the voice is no, my voice is no longer loud, I have a gentle tone, I have a quiet tone, and the closer they get to me, they can see my countenance, my face that matches my tone, smiling, warm, bright. How do you know that you're near to God's presence? when you're near to his voice. And when you're near to his presence and he lifts his countenance up upon you and he shines his face upon you, peace, favor, joy. God's presence is restored when his word is established. And it was dark in Israel now. God began to restore his presence by calling out to a new prophet who would proclaim his word. This is how God begins to restore his presence through establishing his word. He starts by calling a prophet. Last week we learned about the important role that the priest and the king play in Israel. The prophet is an equally important position in that nation. While the priest is a mediator, for the people before God for forgiveness of sins. 
and the king is a representative for the people before God so that they might be able to stand in righteousness. The prophet turns the orientation around. While the king and the priest stand for the people before God, the prophet stands to the people on behalf of God. The prophet starts by saying, their message by saying, thus says the Lord. So if the priest is a mediator and the king is a representative, the prophet is a messenger. When the prophet spoke, God spoke. And the prophet's job was to urge the people back, away from their faithless sin, towards God's obedient word, so that they could be true to the covenant that they had with him as their chosen people, because God put his name on them. And when they were true to the covenant, obedient to his word, his face would shine. And even though Eli and his sons had brought darkness to the house of God, Samuel was a little flicker of hope. On that fateful night, the narrator in 1 Samuel wants you to see where Samuel is before he hears the call. Look at it, verse 3. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark was. The word of the Lord was rare at that time. There were no frequent visions. There were no frequent prophets. They did not hear from the voice of God. But Samuel, on that night, was lying down by two important artifacts, a lampstand and the ark. I want to teach you what these mean. Maybe this will be new for you. Both of these were very significant. They had practical function in Israel's worship. They had symbolic significance as well. You can study about both of these in Exodus 25 to 27, those chapters, if you want to learn more. Let's start with a lamp. As an easy point of reference, if you have Jewish friends or if you know about the, their celebration of Hanukkah, the menorah, the seven-wicked lampstand, that's the lamp they're referring to here. It was made of gold, one center branch with three branches on either side. It was sustained by olive oil. Practically, it was positioned inside the holy place that was covered by drapes outside of the most holy place where the ark was. And because there was a covering of drape around it, practically speaking, the priest needed to see, so the menorah, the lampstand, provided light so he could do his ministering work. Spiritually, though, it symbolically referenced God's presence. It was meant to be tended to and filled with oil in the morning and in the evening. And the persistent glowing of the lamp represented the shining presence of God among them. And Samuel was near this. He was also near the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a golden chest, like a box. And on top of it, there's this beautifully ornate golden figures, two angels with their wings pointed inward, tips pointing to the other one. This was called the mercy seat. Practically speaking, this was the place on the Day of Atonement once a year after an animal was sacrificed that the priest would come in and sprinkle the blood on for the atonement of the whole nation for the forgiveness of sins. 
But there's another practical function as well. When Moses the prophet was there and he wanted to hear the voice of God, he went to the ark. Exodus 25, 21 to 22. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I give you. There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So here's where Samuel lies. In a time where there was no frequent vision, the voice of God was gone, the presence of God seemed absent, but here was this boy laying beside the symbolic presence of God and the symbolic place where a prophet received the word of God. And Yahweh calls out to him. And at first, he doesn't know who it is. Yahweh calls, but the boy goes to Eli. And Eli is, uh, like I said in the first week, about as useful as that dormant chair that he sat on in the vestibule. And we learn that he's blind. But that's just not a physical condition. We're learning also that that's a spiritual condition. And at first, when he sees the boy coming to him, he's completely dismissive. Second time, comes to him completely dismissive. And third time, maybe, maybe Yahweh is calling. He perceives that it might be Yahweh, but he himself can't hear Yahweh's voice. So he gives him an instruction to look, go lie down. Now, while Yah- excuse me, Eli is dismissive, Samuel can't perceive it at first because he hasn't yet been revealed God's word to him. But while he still can't perceive it yet, notice how eager he is. Here I am, here I am, here I am. Now, as I mentioned, the lamp was supposed to be tended to in the morning and in the evening. And sometimes the lamp might go out before the morning, but it was still lit. So it seems likely that if, it's probably like the real, like, real dark hours of the morning here. Like 3 to 5 a.m. When my wife was nursing and we had to wake up at that time, that was the worst. You, she did all of the hard work, but occasionally I would have to get up as well. And I look up and that 3 to 5 a.m. time, I am like just as human as about a worm, right? But it's at that time, Sam was waking up at that time, chipper as a bird. And when God calls to him, He calls to him by name the same way that God called to Moses at the burning bush. Samuel, Samuel. So finally, Eli realizes the significance of what God's doing. He gives his young apprentice a prompting response. Speak, for your servant hears. And God meets with Samuel. He stood, he speaks. God restores his presence when his word is established. He called a prophet. So what was the word then that God declared to Samuel? He called a prophet and he condemned iniquity. Everything that we read there about the destruction and the disaster against Eli's house reinforced what the man of God spoke in the last chapter to Eli. And after Samuel hears this, he's clearly nervous. And 
when Eli goes to him very eagerly in the morning, he's clearly nervous too. Look at what he says again down in verse 17. Eli says, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. May God do so to you. He's kind of invoking Samuel and forcing him into an oath. You better tell me, and if you don't tell me, whatever God said is going to happen, it's going to happen to you. He clearly knows there's some bad news here. And ironically, he already heard the bad news. And there was no recorded response of Eli when the man of God previously came and told him that his whole house would be destroyed. Probably because, just like here, Eli was just dismissing the voice of God. And then when he responds and he says, may God do what, uh, what he seems best, he's just resigned and apathetic. He's blind. He's numb. That's what happens when we dismiss the corrective conviction of the voice of God. Friend, I want you to think on your own heart this past week, maybe this past month. Is there a sin that is so common in the pattern of your lifestyle that you easily justify it and think nothing of it when Scripture clearly condemns it? Let Eli be a warning to you of what happens when we dismiss the clear conviction and instruction of the word of God. If you're willfully and consciously dismissing the conviction of God's spirit, friend, you're slowly withdrawing yourself from God's presence. The conviction of the Spirit is God's voice to you that calls you to come back. But if you keep wandering away in your sin you shouldn't be surprised why it feels like you're cold to God and far from God and can't hear God. It's because you're turning away from him. Like Eli, the more you dismiss God, the more blind and numb you become to who God is. You're searing your conscience you're quenching and grieving the Holy Spirit. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will reap. Be sure your sin will find you out. Yes, the conviction of God's word, it's painful. It's not pleasant. And we'd rather avoid it. But don't you know that God disciplines the one he loves? He is jealous for the spirit that he has put in you. And he gives more grace. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. If you confess your sin, he will be faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You have atonement 
in Christ made once for all. And though it might be fearful or shameful to uncover it, the scripture says, blessed is the one whose transgression is covered, whose sin is forgiven. Don't dismiss God's word. Receive it as grace and be healed. God's presence is restored when his word is established. That day, that morning, when Samuel opened the entrance to the tabernacle, God was closing the door on Eli's family and inaugurating a new era under his new prophet, Samuel. And all the nation would finally know it. Verse 19, And Samuel grew, and Yahweh was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of Yahweh. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself at Samuel to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Hey, if you're wondering, like, what can I pray for my pastors? Verse 19 to 21. That is a great thing to pray for your pastors. What else does a church need than the word of God proclaimed amongst it for the presence of God to be with us? So God would shine his face amongst us so that we would enjoy the warmth and the light of his nearness. When God wants to reestablish his word to restore his presence, here he called a prophet. He condemned iniquity to push away the rubble and build a new foundation, and he confirmed his word. That's what he did through Samuel. None of his words fell to the ground. After 400 years of everyone doing what was right in their own eyes, after disgrace and defilement, injustice and oppression, God was beginning to restore his presence to his people as he called out with his authoritative and trustworthy word. So church, this here is where we need to come if we are going to enjoy the blessing of God's presence. Do you trust his word? or you will desiring to follow your own way. It's barely October, but my wife, by her own initiative, and I'm actually following along this year too, is already starting to make purchases for Christmas. <laughs> That's the kind of woman I married, and I am so thankful for her. <laughs> and we're starting this year to make mostly online purchases. And when I've been looking for things, it's been really helpful when I'm shopping online to look at the reviews, right? Because I want to buy something that's authentic. I want to get something that's trusted because I can't feel it on my hands. I'm only seeing pictures. And so when I see there are, are reviews that number in the hundreds and thousands and like four and a half or 4.8 stars, a trusted information, like I have confidence that I actually purchased this and I'm getting what I paid for. The digital age that we live in has changed the way that we as a society think about trust and think about authority. Like Previously, if you wanted to get a movie review uh, in, in the 70s or 80s, you really relied on, were Siskel and Ebert, was it two thumbs up or two thumbs down? You, you relied on selected individuals who were published and it was curated through some big corporation or institution. But these days, 
we actually have more of a distrust towards corporations and towards institutions because they have to have selfish incentives. So, whether I want to see a movie or I want to buy a product or I want to go to a restaurant, trust has been democratized. That's where we look for our authority. And this has happened similarly when we think about morality. Historic institutions like family, like government, like religion, these select individuals with backing, they must have some kind of untrustworthy incentive. And I'd rather just follow what happens in the masses. Now, the scripture contends that the blessing of God's glorious, awesome, life-giving presence can only be enjoyed when, when God's word is established in our life. Singular. Not open to variety of interpretation. Passed down once for all. So, it's really important that we know, can we trust it? Now, like Samuel and Moses, Jesus had a prophetic ministry. Now, when prophets, any prophet, would give and deliver a message from God, they would also give their message and accompany it with a sign. So Moses, the sign that he was giving, that he was sent from God, was that when he put his, threw his staff on the ground, the staff would change into a serpent. Samuel and the man of God that came with him too, their message that God would destroy Eli's house came with the sign that both Eli's sons would die on the same day. Isaiah, when he came with a message, he said, this is a sign for you. The virgin shall conceive and bear a child. Some kind of miraculous work would accompany and authenticate the message. And Jesus himself had a prophetic ministry like Samuel and Moses. But the people of his time, even though he had a plethora of signs and miracles, still didn't trust him. They wanted more validation. They wanted to verify it on their own terms. So they went to Jesus and said, give us a sign. And Jesus said in Matthew 12, 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus was like, you want a sign? I'm not giving you a sign. The only sign you get is Jonah. What do you mean by the sign of Jonah? He's comparing himself and what he would experience in his death and resurrection as an allusion to a Jonah experience when he was swallowed up by a whale. He's saying that the true valid sign all of everything he spoke was authoritative and true would be verified when he rose from the dead. If you want to have intellectual integrity about your spirituality, there is a clear dividing line when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis describes the options that you have and there's no others. He says in uh, mere Christianity. I'm to trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. 
That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Do you want to experience the blessing of God's presence? Decide today. Will I trust his word? Will I trust his word about my sexuality? Will I trust his word about my finances? Will I trust his word about relationships? Will I trust his word about what is right and wrong? He is Lord or he is not. And he did not just speak to us the word. He himself is the word. John 1 verse 1 and 2, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What we want is the glorious, awesome presence of God. What we need is the established word of God, enter Christ. The word of God himself who is the glory of God from the Father. If you want to enjoy the light of God's presence and the comforting peace and the joy and the favor of being near him, turn to Christ. Trust him. He's the vine. We are the branches. And apart from him, we can do nothing. Church, do you want this? our community, and your soul to be a place where every time we come, it is warm, it is bright, it is shining, it is transforming of our character. The rest of the world sees it and wants something of it. That is the blessing of God's presence. God's presence is restored when his word is established. So you need not only to pray for their pastors to be like Samuel, you yourself need to be like Samuel. We can be a community and a place where the glory of God's presence dwells when every day at 3.30 a.m. you're ready to wake up and say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. May this be our church. Would you pray with me now? awesome God, we as a church want to be a blessing to the world. And our desire, we know that when we behold your glory and become like Christ, that's when your blessing will come to your creation. So Father, I pray that you forgive us. Forgive us for our negligent absence of your presence to say that we love you, to say that we follow you, but to be so dismissive of your voice, 
to neglect the reading of scripture, to neglect the practice of prayer, which I myself too often can be tempted to go my own way rather than enjoy you. God, may we be a church that is a vine connected to the branch, that is warmed by the fire of your presence, and that is a shining bright hill so that others might see our good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Lord, shine your face upon us. Give us clear eyes to see who you are, that we might rejoice in you all our days. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.